guys, welcome back to the podcast, episode 10 of the uh, career, the never-ending career, which is still freaking going on. God, I'm tired. So when we left off last time, I had just gotten orders to the Special Forces Sniper course to go be an instructor for three years, three-year gig. I went kicking and screaming because I didn't want to go because I didn't want to leave my team, and it turned out to be a phenomenal part of my career, which had almost change a lot of things from then on in a, in a lot of ways now the way it works in, in special forces i don't know how the other services do the things like this but when you've been on a team for a couple of years and you're the senior guy kind of in your mos your your occupation i was a senior bravo in the company you're going to swick you're going to be an instructor whether you like it or not now some guys have figured out how to avoid it um, medics get pulled less because they are so vital to the team. You can't do anything without a medic. You can't go to free fall training. You can't go to combat. You can't do missions. You need a medic, right? You can get rid of your Bravo and nobody really notices. So I'm like the senior 18 Bravo and they're like, you're going to swick. Try to get out of it. Try to get out of it. Try to get out of it. To no avail. Now, the beauty of being in third special forces group as opposed to some of the other groups is that a lot of the schools are at Fort Bragg. So when I go from third group to, to be a sniper instructor, I just drive to a different place on Fort Bragg for three years. Whereas if I'm in seventh group and I'm stationed in Florida, if I'm in 10th group, I, I, I got to move myself and my whole family to Bragg for three years. Now, some of the other schools are, are in other, like um, uh, freefall schools in Yuma, Arizona. Dive school is in Key West. And that sounds like an awesome duty station for three years. Unless you have kids. Do you really want to raise your kids in Key West? But if you're a single guy, man, you'd be getting it on. So the, being at Bragg, I didn't have to move anywhere. I just drove to a different place, which is really cool. And that was one of the reasons I kind of wanted third group, honestly, because I knew this would, this day would come where I'd have to go be an instructor. So a lot of the schools, if not them all, at least the majority of them, they have civilians there too. They're GS-11s, GS-12s, and they're retired special ops guys who take a job as a civilian instructor. Sniper School has four, I believe. And some of these guys have been there for a very long time. And it, it's a very, very smart model. And there's pros and cons to everything. But generally, your, your civilian instructors are your continuity. Been there for a long time. Very experienced guys. All sniper qualified, Green Berets that, that retired, right? They, they worked there as, as a civilian instructor. So they're the continuity. And then the, the green suitors are coming back from combat and they're coming back in with the latest TTPs, tactics, techniques, procedures. They're coming back going, this is what we're doing now. This is, uh, this is how the battlefield has evolved. And the balance between those two, it can be very, very successful or it can be a little contentious, right? It's not unusual for green suitors to come back and go, oh, this is out of date. And it's not unusual for civilians to think oh my god another guy coming in trying to change stuff now changing a school can be good and it can be bad change for the sake of change is not a great idea and it happens a lot in swick um nobody ever got a bullet on their non-commissioned officer or officer evaluation nobody ever got a, an excellent bullet that said kept everything the same because it was really good right everybody wants to change it now but you have to evolve and you have to move with the times. So when I came to sniper school as an instructor in 2008, I'd already been a SIF sniper. 
Uh, I've already been a sniper down range. I was sniper qualified. I'd been a sniper in Ireland. I'd been a sniper in Special Forces in Ireland. I'd been to Todd Hodnett's school. I'd, I'd pretty experienced guy, but I didn't know what I didn't know, and I learned a lot while while being an, a sniper instructor at uh, Fort Bragg. And I learned a lot over 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 the three year periods. Three years is a long time to be standing behind glass and spotting rounds and training snipers for three years straight. It's a long time to be immersed. And long-range shooting and sniping and all that is, is an art form, and there's so much to it, and I really took to it. And I, I, I jumped in with both feet, and it became my passion, which it still is to this day, honestly. So got there in 08 as an instructor, E7, from a SIF company, brand new guy. Now, Sean Kirkwood, who works here at Fieldcraft with me, Sean got there at the exact same time. And he was a master sergeant and he was coming off being a troop sergeant major in A15, which is the fifth group SIF. He was sniper qualified, but it had been a long time and he'd been running assaulters and he'd been employing snipers, but he hadn't worked as a sniper in a little while. And so he went to Todd Hodnitz too before he came to the schoolhouse he went out there just to catch up on you know how things have evolved and they had evolved a lot i had been to sniper school to that sniper school in in the year before like in 07 and I, i've said it before i went to sniper school in ireland in 87 or 88 and went to special forces sniper course 20 years later not much had changed minute of angle turrets uh, you know um 10 power scopes bolt guns not a lot of night fire, old wind formulas, no ballistic calculators. It hadn't really changed. Now, I got there at a great time because stuff was changing. And <clears throat> because of the war and because of guys like Todd Hodnett, a lot of things was were evolving. Now, things can evolve, and if you don't maintain that pace, you fall behind. And there were services who fell behind. And I'll be honest, like I shot the, uh, people are going to lose their mind when I say this, but I shot the uh, International Sniper Competition in 2009, and the Marine Corps crushed everybody. Two guys with bolt guns, rocking those bolt guns, crushed everybody. And the Marine Corps were known for being very good marksmen. Marine Corps fell behind after that. Everybody else evolved, and the Marine Corps fell way behind and got stuck in a rut, and, and it, it, it was years, there were years behind everybody else. And they they, they just... They got stuck in the past and didn't move forward with ballistic calculators and, and great radicals and all that stuff. Anyway, I'll get to that in a little bit. So my, myself and Sean got there at the same time in the summer of 08. We're both very experienced and we're both very similar types of guys. So Sean came in and kind of caught up. And, and when you get there, you shadow a class. Um, so you sit through every single class again, even though you're qualified, you go to every stalking event, you go to the range, and you're assigned another instructor to be your, like, to shadow him. I was assigned Ricky Harris, if anybody knows him. Ricky's a great guy. I was lucky to get assigned a really solid instructor. So I went to the range every day, went to the stalking events, went to the, the, sat through every single class. Now, sniper school is not just shooting. It's about half shooting. There's, you know, stalking and, and, um, photography and, and reconnaissance and optic. And there's a whole massive section to it. And at the time I got there, a lot of the sergeant major was from 10th group. The NCOIC who was there was from 10th group. It was a very 10th group feel. And, and every group in SF has its own personality. And the 10th group feel was very low-vis, reconnaissance, driving around in cars and civilian clothes and, and tagging things. And it wasn't really what snipers are supposed to do. 
but it was what they were doing in 10th group at the time. So that's what became the standard. Me and Sean were both getting back after multiple trips with, you know, to Iraq uh, with the ICTF, and we knew what we were doing in combat. So as we went through all these classes, and it was very obvious that the classes had not been updated in a long time. When you see a guy in the old BDUs with a mustache, and, and like those, those videos on there from the 80s, and uh, it really did need to get revamped. So, but you got to tread lightly, right? You can't go in there and go, oh my God, this is out of date. We got to change, 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 change. So you got to tread lightly and you got to push forward. And But at a certain point, if you're the boss, which Sean was, then you got to say, no, we're doing it this way. And I remember <clears throat> when I was shadowing, we were doing an exercise. I'm trying not to make this about shooting and sniper stuff. It's more about getting out of your comfort zone, you know, training philosophy and, and, and lessons learned in training people. And that, that applies to anything. But when we were... Uh, when I was shadowing, we did a sniper-initiated assault where a sniper sits in an overrides position, the assault team comes in, you do a countdown, they hit the target. Well, they had a student sitting on the overwatch position, and when he fired a live round, it skipped off the ground before it went, and I, I think it missed the target, but and anything like that sends you to a safety board in a school like that where a panel of guys hear what you say and they decide whether to kick you off the course or not. And... It's the same at Sephardic, which is the CQB hostage rescue school. If you do anything, if you have a flyer, if you have an ND, if you go to a safety board, right? And that's great because safety is extremely important. However, you, 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 you can breed a culture where people are not willing to get out of their comfort zone because they're afraid to make a mistake and go to a safety board. And, and schools are there to make mistakes. You learn by making mistakes, right? As long as you're safe, you learn. But there was there was a few archaic rules where if you made them, you're gone right away. And and at this time, this is 2008, we needed snipers in the bat- on the battlefield. Special Forces Sniper Course trains Rangers, Delta Force operators, and Green Berets, right? Pretty squared away group of people, right? But people make mistakes. It doesn't matter who you are. People make mistakes. Now, it's, it's pure negligence. Negligent discharge, absolutely unforgivable. Gone, right? If you do everything right and you take a shot and you hit or hit you you hit an obstacle or you, you hit the bottom of a window or something like that, we can get past that, right? As long as you learn from it. Now, when this guy, this student who was from fifth group, took a shot, skipped off the ground, and they safety boarded him right away. And, of course, Sean was taking over at the time. So Sean sits on the safety board and I think there's four other people and they hear what happened and they all voted, kick him out, kick him out, kick him out, kick him out. And Sean talked to me beforehand because I was there and he said, what was your assessment? And I said, it's the instructor's fault. The instructor put him in a position. He's a student. The instructor put him in that position with ground in front of him that rose up that he set him up for failure. To me, that's the instructor's fault. So they all voted to kick him out, and Sean said, nope, he's staying in. And they were pissed. They were mad. And, of course, it was the, oh, it's because he's from fifth group. And I actually know the guy now. Like, I, I'd, I'd been to Todd Hoddard's with him later on, and I ran into him. And the guy's a freaking rock star. But you're a student. Instructor says, lay down here. Shoot that target. You're very minimally trained in what you're doing. Then that's the instructor's fault. There was a culture when we got there. A lot of people were failing. So you would do, you would start with sniper marksmanship, and they started with iron sights. They started with iron sights with those uh, palm sights on an M24, no optic, and they started shooting 
with the, the weird sling that wraps around your cuff and then the, the shooting glove that you, you lock into the position. And a shooting glove is like a big oven mitt. When I was at school, we were using sand socks, which is what everybody uses. But again, the old school way was you're not allowed to use a sand sock. You have to use a shooting glove. And we're like, we don't have shooting gloves in combat. I've carried a sand sock in my cargo pocket in combat to prop up on, on a rooftop and, and shoot from, but you weren't allowed to use it in the course. And one of the guys from my unit, who's known to be a smartass, he wrote on the board, number of countries where you can get a, a shooting glove, zero. Number of countries where you can fill a sock full of sand for you and all your indage, all of them. And he's absolutely right. And sand socks are way better. But it was this kind of trapped in the old ways that didn't make any sense. So we're allowed to use a sand sock and you had to shoot iron sights for four days. And then you put a scope on and then you shot, you know, you started zeroing and gathering data and and working back on a KD range at uh, 0 to 100, 200, 300, 400, 600, and 800. And shooting at big targets and and you know the the whole thing was like oh you need to get all your point as many points as you can at two three and four because you don't want to have to hit at six or eight and i remember being on the range and i asked one of the civilians why don't we shoot at nine because it was a 900 yard berm there and he said it's beyond the capabilities of the weapon system it's a 308 bolt gun i've shot a 308 bolt gun at a mile so again you're trapped and i'd like to think if i go back this you know i know the guy who runs sniper school now he just wrapped up he was my 18 bravo on my team he's a personal friend of mine we were sniper team together we won the international sniper competition together he's a really really solid guy and one of the best shooters in the country they have uh the 300 norm mrads out there and they're shooting three out of five hits at a mile I don't go. Oh, that's 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 about. I go. That's awesome, man. That is so cool. I'm 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 so happy to hear that. So you, sometimes you got to get out of your own way. So me and John got there. John overread override on that safety board, and they were all mad as hell, right? And then he started looking and looking, and a lot of it was outdated. And you know, we we started kind of evolving. So Sean, as one of his first things, he brought Todd Hodnett in to sniper school to teach a block of instruction on the ballistic calculator and the wind formula. The wind formula we were using was old, outdated wind formula from the Army, and it's not specific to a caliber. And so people, man, and that is SIF companies at this point had ballistic calculators. They had Horus reticles. Other teams did not, but it was starting to change. So we started, we were getting 300 wind mags at that point, and we started getting ballistic calculators. We started getting better optics and reticles. And you have to teach what the force has. So you have to wait until that force mod piece catches up. But it became, it was a, it was a constant battle with guys. However, you, you can change the culture on a school like that. It takes a couple of classes. And it takes a little while for people to realize that it doesn't have to be like this. I remember going to Todd's one time. So I started shooting competitively when I was there. I, I, I became obsessed with long-range shooting. And you couldn't, people think, oh, you work at sniper school, you shoot all the time. Well, you can't shoot during the day because you're teaching students. But I had access to the range on the weekends and I had pretty much unlimited ammo. And I used to go in every weekend and shoot my ass off. And I became very, very good. Range 37 has, it has pop-up targets uh, like six in a row at 100 200 300 400 then it has movers at all those ranges and then it has diagonal movers at two between one and two and two and three 
and you can run a program and just shoot movers and it has sniper towers and all kinds of stuff it's, it's a really really cool place to work so the other thing you you'll see so there's kind of two sides to the school there's the shooting side and then there's the the field craft side the shooting so you can't shoot all day you'll burn yourself out so students would shoot you're talking about 32 students and i think we went up to 40 at one point students would shoot in the morning half would shoot in the morning and half would go do stalking exercise they do judging distance they do all kinds of other stuff and then they flip-flop camouflaging it's then they flip-flop in the afternoon so we took a hard look at why students were failing it was not unusual you do the m24 piece the sniper marksmanship right most guys get through that and then you would go to the field shoot and on the field shoot you had to shoot unknown distance targets so you had to measure them with your scope and shoot them and wind and all that it was not unusual for 10 people to fail that and it's not that hard of a test and and you have to look at the instructors if your students are failing every class there's something the instructor is not teaching them i never had a student fail because it's not rocket science it's fairly simple when we started shooting competitively four of us went down and shot at Todd Hodnitz for a week and came back and I remember driving back going we need to change the wind formula to Todd's wind formula it's just so much better and the wind formula is what you, how you calculate how much to aim off for wind and we're like we'll never ever do it there's no way so we got a lot of resistance so we did a practical exercise we put 10 wind problems on the board and like 400 yards 16 mile an hour wind 800 yards 12 mile an hour wind you know 700 yard or meters um you know, six mile an hour wind. And one of the, the guys there, one of the civilians, he, he did it the old way. And one of our guys did it with the new, with Todd, Todd Nett's wind formula. And he, he, I don't think, the guy was halfway through and, and the guy doing the short wind formula was finished. And they were more accurate based on the ballistic calculator. So we got that changed. And of course, you have to change doctrine in a school like that. It's a massive process, but we just changed it and let the doctrine catch up whenever it, it could. We we got a lot changed and a lot modernized and a lot and a lot of standards changed in about the first year when Sean was there, and then um, Sean moved on to another job and they put a guy in there who just was not capable of doing the job. Another E eight who was sniper qualified but was not the right guy, and he from day one was just a disaster and he was screwing and he got a job there because he knew somebody and and hook up and he he got a he was just screwing shit up and screwing shit up and screwing shit up and it was a nightmare to work there for that period then he got fired and i made e8 i made master sergeant and they made me the ncic so from that point when i pinned on e8 in 2010 i was in charge of everywhere i ever went from then on pretty much and I became very, very, I'm actually more comfortable being in charge. It's difficult for me to work in a unit or a company where I'm not in charge. It just, it, it drives me crazy. But from then on, for the next 10 years of my career, I was in charge of everywhere I ever went. So I pin on E8 and I take over. And I immediately start reverting back and changing and fixing stuff. I took all the instructors whose students failed shooting and I wouldn't let them teach shooting anymore. I made two committees. I made a fieldcraft committee. Fieldcraft is stalking and camouflage and concealment and, and judging distance. I made a, a committee for that. I made a committee for shooting. I put all my best shooting instructors on there. And then I, I changed the philosophy where I said, it's not okay for your students to fail. If your students fail, I am going to counsel you. And every now and again, you get a guy who doesn't get it. I get that. 
right? But generally, there's no reason why a student should fail sniper school. These are Green Berets again, Ranger Regiment and Delta Force operators. And as a Green Beret, your job is to train people. And your job is to train indige around the world. So if you can't train Green Berets, Delta Force operators and Rangers, then yeah, that's pretty sad. When I got there, they sent us to an instructor training course for two weeks. It was garbage. It was, it was a horrible course and it was badly run. I got nothing from it, but you had to do it to get qualified. So you train the, you, you change the mindset where it's not okay because it used to be, and I've seen this before in other schools where our students are stupid, man. You just don't get it. And that's just not the case. Now, in Sephardic, where you're breaching doors and shooting, and, and guys do get overwhelmed in the house, but that's a different thing. Laying on your belly in Fort Bragg, shooting targets out to 800 or 1,000 in low winds is not that hard. The other thing I did was, you know, I just came back, and Sean started this, but I continued it and, and actually increased it. I just come back from a couple of deployments where we exclusively worked at night because we were hitting guys in their bed down in location. When I went to sniper school in 2007, there was one night shoot. And it was just a familiarization fire. And it was just on set. So I implemented night shoots, a lot of them. I remember some weeks we had four night shoots. And you're working all day, and then you're doing a night shoot. And it, especially in the summer where it doesn't get dark to late, it's brutal. But I had two crews. So one crew would work Monday and Wednesday night. The other crew would work Tuesday and Thursday night. But I was out there every single night. Because it's easy to write it on the board and dictate it as the boss if you're not doing it. And it's unfair because you, you need to feel the pain too, right? So I was out there every time. And half the class on the night shoot would do shooting and half would do photography at nighttime. And then they'd flip-flop, right? Um, night, night training was vitally important. The other thing, anytime a student failed for anything, I took a hard look at it. Some students were failing on the stalking exercise where they had a ghillie suit up and they had a maneuver and they had three hours to maneuver, you know, a, a kilometer maybe, maybe 1,500 meters, get into a, a final firing position with all their camouflage, take a shot with a blank. Then the observation post would try to find them. If they found them, they'd walk a, a walker onto them. And the walker they're walking on, he represents the bullet basically. And... If you were walked on, then you got busted. And, and guys were getting busted a lot. So we took a hard look at the stalking. And we started doing... And, and in 2009, I went back to Ireland as a snipe to an international counter-terrorist sniper course in my old unit in the Ranger Wing in Ireland. How cool was that, right? And I'll get to that in a minute. But one of the things I took from that was a thing called CAMCON exercise, camouflage and concealment exercises. And... If you're if you're learning CQB, right, and you're 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 learning employment of a flashbang, you don't hit the whole house every time. You isolate the piece that you need and you practice that over and over again. So you go into rooms and you practice employing flashbang, employing flashbang, employing flashbang. You don't have to hit the whole house. And when you're training stalking, you don't have to do a three hour stalk. If the part they're failing on is the last 5, 10, 15 minutes when they're moving into their final firing position, that's what you need to isolate. And that became the camouflaging consumer exercise. So what we would do, instead of doing a three-hour stalk, we'd bring them out and we'd say, okay, that's your left limit, that's your right limit, and that's your backstop, like 100 meters away. You have seven minutes to get into position. And the instructor would turn his back and they'd just run out there in the woods They'd practice, they'd get their natural veg on, their backstop, their screening, they get everything, and they get into that position. 
And then after seven minutes, he'd turn around and he'd scan, look for them. And then he'd do the stalking piece where he would walk, they'd walk around, they would take the shot. He'd walk onto them. He'd try to take a second shot and we'd play that piece. And then when that was done, everybody come back in and then we'd, we'd turn to a different direction and go left limit, right limit, backstop. Now you have four minutes to get into position. And you do it again. And, and then you'd do it again. You come back and you'd make it three minutes and you cut, keep cutting the time. And in the time it took to do a three-hour stalk, you could do six, seven camouflaging concealment exercise to isolate the part that people were failing on to get them through. When I took over, I booked all the ranges through the weekend, and I booked all, and I, 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 if your student was failing in stalking, you were coming in on the weekend to train them, and I will be there too. And if your f- student was failing in shooting, then you're coming in on the weekends and you're going to teach them on the weekends. And I'm not lowering standards. I'm raising the level of training. I'm, I'm raising the level of instruction. To me, it was a privilege to work at cyber school. And if you don't want to work there, and I said this to guys, you don't work here because it's too hard. I will get you a job teaching small unit tactics. No harm, no foul. I won't give you a bad NCOER. I'll just move you out there and I'll move somebody in here who appreciates the opportunity to train the next generation of snipers because you get guys who are into it and shoot competitively and, and really, really read ballistics books and all, and you get guys who are just there because they have to be there and they do the bare minimum. And that, that just didn't cut it. When when Sean left, he went away, and then he came back as the sergeant major in charge of range 37. And, and so I was the NCIC while he was there. The, so I had his support. So new guys that would come in would get briefed by him and told, look, if you're here to, to, to screw off and, and, and you know, do not, you're, you're in the wrong place. You, you, will, you will work, you will work your ass off, and you'll be held accountable for your students passing, right? And it changed the culture after a class or two. That just becomes the norm. New people come in, and the, the guys who were there who were bitching about the, the, the new way of doing things are briefing them, and, hey, this is how things are done. That's, it takes about two classes, I've seen, to change the culture of a school. But it's got to be top-down driven. We we got a lot of resistance, so I, I brought the commander and the sergeant major in. And I trained them on on wind formulas and a bunch of things, and they were like, "Oh my God, we're we're sold." When in two thousand nine, while Sean was still the boss, uh, I talked to a guy. I I was still in contact in the Army Ranger Wing in Ireland, and they were running an international counter-terrorist sniper course in Ireland. And they were like, can you go? And I was like, ooh, I doubt it. So I mentioned it to Sean. And Sean was like, hey, if you get a, an official invite, I'll send you. I was like, okay, got an official invite. So Sean sent me to Ireland, back home where my whole family lived there, back to the range wing. The unit I'd left, oh my Lord, what was that, 2007, 20, uh, yeah, not quite 20, 15 years before. Some of the guys were still there. The NCIC of the, the sniper course had been in uh, selection with me. And we served together. The the unit commander had been in uh, my selection course, and uh, so I went back there, and I got it. I got to go back home for three weeks, and do a sniper course. So there was French snipers there. There was Swedish. There was German. There was who else was there? I think Spanish. And we went through, and it was basically each each country was bringing lessons learned and, and I taught some classes and they weren't really evolved into the Horus Radicals or which they are now. And, and you know, I, I learned a few things there. Uh, the Cam Con thing, I brought that back. We did aerial gunnery shooting at a helicopter. I actually have a video on my, my uh, Instagram, I think. But, you know, I shot at a helicopter a lot. It was something we did at sniper school. And shooting from a helicopter is difficult. Right now, 
the best way to engage from a helicopter is with a friggin' minigun. But you can't always do that. If if you're on a, a, a go plat or an offshore oil rig or, or gas rig, you can't be spraying the damn thing down. So you do need that precision fire. And you can be fairly accurate if you know what you're doing. However, shooting from a moving helicopter is much more difficult. And a hovering helicopter is very vulnerable to small arms fire. But we did that. And they had a bead bag that they put into like a kit bag and strapped it so you sat in the doorway with this bean bag and it took all the vibration out. I thought that was pretty cool. The exercises we did were very, very police-type, internal security, uh, hostage rescue-type stuff. But it was really cool. It was so cool to be able to go back there and to a unit I'd left many, many years before and go back, see a lot of guys that were still there and go see my family on the Uncle Sam's dime. Yeah, it was really, really cool exercise or, or opportunity. Yeah, it was really badass. We were on the range one day and uh, the general alarm went off in the car. I don't know if it still does that on the range. And it was like, I don't know why. They test it once a week. And one of the guys, one of the guys, one of the Irish guys on the range said, uh, oh, the Yanks are coming. They heard we had oil. <laughs> and uh, and somebody else said, the war will be over in 20 minutes. So... <laughs> That's my best Irish accent. I can't do an Irish accent anymore. But I had a blast. Great bunch of guys. And they started going. I got them uh, in 2009. We started running the USASOC sniper competition, the United States Army Special Operations Command sniper competition. And we pulled in. I have a video of that that I might just insert right here that I, uh, guys made of me explaining who was there and some of the, some of the events. But um, I was the NCIC at the time. And, okay, so it must have been 2010, the, the Irish came over, the Ranger Wing came over that one year, and they, they did okay, they didn't do great, and then they came back the next year, and the next year they came back, they had better training and better equipment, the next year they came back, and, and the same thing with the one in Fort Benning, they kept coming to that, to a point where they won it. And that's, man, if you're willing to put your ego aside and go compete, it's easy to say you're the best and you don't compete with anybody else, right? But if you're willing to put your ego aside and go compete and learn and learn and learn, it's a great learning environment. The first year we ran that thing, it was kind of dictated to us, but we ran it. I had shot the one in Fort Benning, the international one, the one the Marines won, and we learned a lot about what not to do. It was a very badly run competition. It was just too many moving parts. You would get a briefing in the holding area and then you go up to the line and the briefing would be completely different. Uh, the points were weird. The, the, it was just not great. And then the, the vendors who provided the prizes were badly treated in Benning that year. They were on an off-site position and away from the competitors. And So we learned a lot about what not to do. So we ran the first one in uh, Fort Bragg, the, the international, or the, the USASOC sniper comp. We invited some police agencies and... No, it was open to Army only, Army Special Forces only. So Delta actually won it. And then uh, a team, two young, young guys from third group came second. And they almost won. It was like within a point or two. And the guy who came second on that became, he ended up being on my team, being my 18 Bravo, my team, being my sniper partner. And he just finished running sniper school. And he's one of the top shooters in the country. He's just a very naturally talented guy. So... Uh, very successful. Then we tweaked it. We ran it the next year. So I ran that competition, or I was involved in that competition for about three years straight. I ran the uh, stress tests on the first two, and then I oversaw the whole thing on, on the last one. And it's a phenomenal competition, and it's extremely difficult. It is top-notch competitors, very challenging stages, 
and, and the, the committee out there, the sniper committee, who already have a day job, they, they run courses, they do a top-notch job running that. And it's coming up here actually in March. And if you can get on Fort Bragg, you're allowed to go and watch some of the events. It's actually open to anybody who has an ID card. So if you, you're retired or you can get on Fort Bragg, then you, you can go and watch some of it. Very creative, very tough competition. There was a there was a time in sniper school where they did I don't know if they still do this but the 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 hostage rescue school that Svartik that CQB hostage rescue school is run concurrently and they do a joint exercise at the end where snipes overwatch the target and take live shots and 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 the assaulters go in and hit that they they kind of work together that way Svartik at the time was it was built and ran to feed assaulters to the SIF companies sniper school's not like that sniper school is there to feed us snipers to every team. Every team's supposed to have a level one sniper, but it doesn't always have. The cultural change at that school, well, I was I was lucky enough to be there during it, was, was phenomenal. By the end, we were, we were crushing. We were competitively, like two of our instructors won the international sniper competition in 2010 with two 16-inch gas guns from LaRue, two 16-inch 308s. And I won it in 2011, but I just left sniper school and I went back to be a team sergeant in, in the SIF company, in third group. And the year I won it, they, they said that they were going to take away special forces advantage because there was two classes. There was service class. Every year there was service class, which is army guns. And then there was open class, which is whatever guns your unit uses, right? So SF had different guns and and, and, and equipment does make a difference. However, you, you, you can give shitty equipment to good shooters and they'll do really well or you can give great equipment to people who don't know what they're doing and they won't they won't be able to do it they the year i won it they they said they were going to take away sf's advantage and they they wouldn't let us shoot our guns they made us all shoot army guns they made us all shoot m110 sas's knight's armament and we won i was in b23 the irish guys the ranger wing came second and two instructors from sniper school came third so we beat you even with your own gear, right? So it's easy to point fingers and go, oh, they have better gear, they have better gear. And it is true. However, unless you train, you're really... And it's hard to beat a sniper instructor because he does it all the time. Guys coming back from deployments who get a, a couple of weeks to train up and go again, it, it's hard to compete with a guy who was a sniper instructor who lives that stuff every single day. Yeah, I was in... Uh, well, I was in Sodic one time. I was in up in Utah, like Red Rocks Canyon, shooting high angle stuff with Todd Hadnett. And we were coming along, walking along the ridge line, and there was a pond down in the valley. And I had a 1911 pistol, and I pulled it out. I was going to try to shoot around into it, like purely, like fictional, right? And Todd was like, "Stop! Let's let's do the math." So we hit it with a rangefinder, and it's 600 meters away. And he pulls out a ballistic calculator. And he builds a 1911 in the ballistic calculator and he gets a mill hold for that shot with that big ass uh, 45, 11.3 millimeter bullet. And the hold he got was something like 43 mils or something. So he took a spot and scope out and he measured from the pond up the mountain on the back end of the pond, 43 mils, right? Or whatever the number was. And um, he holds the gun at 40, I can't remember he did it or I did Holds the gun at 43 mils and takes a shot. And the bullet landed like a foot in front of the pond. 
and then raise it up, and I think it was me, and then fire, bump, 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 five rounds into the pond at 600 yards using a ballistic calculator, which is just shocking. It's math, and it really does work. Now, technology is great, but you still have to learn the uh, the basics, right? You still have to learn. You can learn how to use a GPS. It's a great tool. I use it in combat many, many times. Still have to know how to use it. Map and compass. And that's a big struggle in the Army because the Army and the military, they tend to try to... You have to evolve with technology, but they tend to try to replace training with technology, and it doesn't work that way. Technology does not reduce the training requirement. It actually increases it because now you still have to learn your map and compass and now you got to learn your GPS, right? You still have to use your whiz-bang high-speed gear and you still ha- you have to learn the old stuff as well. So it, it, it's a constant struggle. And during the war on terror, a lot of equipment evolved and it got bought very, very quickly and it got pushed out there very, very quickly and it, um, the training just didn't come with it. When I, I'm skipping ahead now, but when I ran Force Modernization Office, when new equipment came out, like thermal imagers or scopes or guns, I made sure Sniper School got them first. Whereas before I got there, they got them last because the theory was we have to get this stuff to the operational force because they're going to combat. Well, it's no good if the operational force doesn't know how to damn use it. So I made sure all the guns, all the optics and everything went to SWIC first. Uh, And that should be the case across the board for every single school. On my way out of B23 to go to SWIC, I I went to free fall school. Three-week free fall school, Yuma, Arizona. I had been free fall qualified in Ireland. I had been to, I had a... I'd done an AFF courses when I was between armies. I I had a a civilian skydive license, but military free fall is not skydiving, or at least it shouldn't be, right? It's not really practical to be a skydiver. It's fun, but it's not really practical. So when you go to sniper school or free fall school, they do a lot of training and then you jump. And just when you're getting the hang of it, they strap rucksack on you. And just when you get the hang of that, they put an oxygen mask on you and a weapon. And just when you get a hang of that, they turn the lights out and toss you out of the bird. And they do it like accelerator free fall. Do a lot of wind tunnel time beforehand. And then they jump with two instructors who twist you and turn you and make sure you're flat and, you know, flying properly. And I knew how to fly already. Again, I was in B-23 and we had a contract with the wind tunnel so we could go there a lot. I knew how to fly a rock. I was terrible at packing a chute. I was in like the remedial chute packing class and then I caught it up because you're really, really under time constraints. But I went to free fall school for a couple of, for three weeks and I came back and then I went to SWIC. So I only jumped a couple of times in SWIC and when I went back to my team, which was a sniper team in the SIF company, free fall, I was like the least trained guy in the team when it came to free fall. So I had to go straight to, or I made myself go straight to Freefall Jumpmaster and ADIC, which is Advanced Tactical Infiltration Course in Fort ben- in, in Yuma, Arizona. I spent six weeks down there jumping and training, and I came back like really, really, really proficient in, in military freefall. The three years I spent at sniper school were they were eye opening for me. They 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 made me realize I, I, I really do love to teach people. I, I get it kind of fulfills me right and that's what I want to do and that's what I want to do going forward from now on I just want to teach people that all this other stuff I do I, I, I have no passion for it but I do like to teach people and when I was at sniper school I got to go to Todd Hannes like 10 times and for a while I held a record on, on Todd's wind course uh, with, a, with an 18 inch LaRue uh, gas gun I, I got to the point where 
I was so good with it, with a, and I'm not anymore, but it's a perishable skill, but I was so good with a gun, with a, a long gun, that I almost couldn't miss. And, and there's a lot of confidence in that, in this game, when you get behind that optic and you call your own wind and you're like, you go, oh, I know I'm going to hit this target. To be able to get to that level, it, it takes a long time. It really does. And it, it, but if you start doubting yourself, like I, I ran a ballistics course this last weekend and, and we were talking about setting up the rifle and I'm like, look, if your rifle's not perfectly set up for you and you don't have a good zero, it's going to play on your mind later on and you're going to be second guessing things and I got to check my zero and again, you're going to be back and forth back. It's better to do it right the first time, gain that confidence and then, you know, start smacking targets. The ability to go to Todd's that many times and then sitting around at night after training, drinking beer or drinking whiskey or drinking tea in my case and talking about ballistics and talking about like that deep deep knowledge from guys like like uh todd and brian Litz and 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 it was just a phenomenal experience and it gave me a knowledge base that would stand to me as a team sergeant in the sniper team and as the force mod guy rebuilding a lot of these programs like the advanced sniper rifle like the one to six optic and a lot of other programs that ballistics knowledge really did help me to hire the right guys and and to to steer programs in the right direction. So working at Sniper, you know, if you're in SF and you're getting this assignment to go to SWIC, it can be a good thing, man. People freaking hate it and they avoid it. It actually helped me when I got out of the army, I think, that I took a knee in the middle of war for three years and I didn't want to and I wouldn't have done. I took a knee in the middle of war and I went to be an instructor. And I, when I retired, a couple of things helped me. Number one, I had a, I had a break. Number two, I don't drink. And number three, I, I rolled right into a job at the other end that, uh, and I had a good supporting wife who freaking uh, helped me through everything, right? So the, if, if you're, sometimes things happen for a reason, right? If you're being forced to take a break, then maybe the universe knows what's best for you and you don't. Great time, phenomenal school, great instructors that work their ass off long long hours and have a passion for teaching students and uh, putting snipers on now snipers are more relevant now than they've ever been and and that's been proven very very uh, a lot lately okay so at the end of that i you know when you when you're in the military you kind of steer your own career or the army will steer it for you and sf will steer it for you so coming out of sniper school as a master sergeant and going back to third group, I had a decision to make. Where do I want to go? And do I want to go to the SIF company or do I want to go somewhere else? But I had this three years of experience and knowledge and I felt like I would be better value to the regiment as a SIF team sergeant. I just did, right? And so I put in for that job and I got it. And I went back to the SIF company and I had a freaking rock star team. The thing about the SIF company, like some of these guys are team sergeants and they have young guys under the E5s who are 18 extras. All, all the guys on my team were pretty much E7s, all very experienced. Also Florida qualified, all SOTA sniper qualified, mostly or all free fall qualified. Been on multiple deployments, been to combat. It was easy, man. For me, being a team sergeant was cakewalk because I had a rock star team. A lot of those guys are friends to this day. Stevie uh, teaches for me here. Terry Ransodic, a good friend of mine. Jimmy's a CSM and freaking third group. Freaking rock star group of guys. So it made it very, very easy for me. Came back, pulled all the guys in, and I said, okay, guys, 
what do we need to work on? What's the gap? And they all said long range shooting because the guy that I replaced didn't do it. He wasn't comfortable, wouldn't want his thing. So I was like, oh, it's on now. So we did a ton of long range shooting. I brought the team to Todd's for like two weeks and we shot our ass off and it was awesome. Then I, the next year, I brought him to K&M in Florida because that place is run by Brian Morgan. Brian Morgan has a place up in Idaho now, which is a phenomenal shooting facility. Probably the best I've ever seen. Brian is an awesome dude, accomplished shooter, and just one of the nicest people you ever meet in your life. So I went, the reason I, I wanted to work in alternate positions because as shooting competitively, I, I understood that, that there's a gap there, right? If you can hit a target on your on a knee, you can hit it on your belly all day long. And and this this solid, stable, flat position in combat really doesn't exist. It doesn't exist too much in hunting either. So I, I understand there was a I understood there was a gap in our game in alternate positions and and running and gunning and getting into position quickly and getting out of position quickly. So we went to Brian Morgan's place in uh, Florida for a week. We went in, we zeroed, and we trued our guns, and we got our muzzle velocity on our belly, and then we never shot on our belly again the rest of the week. It was all running and gunning, standing, posted, shooting from behind cover. Get out of your comfort zone. A lot of times we train on stuff that's in our comfort zone because we like it and we enjoy it and we're good at it, right? It, 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 you really do have to shake things up and go get out of your comfort zone. I did a couple more schools. I, and like I said, I went to Yuma, and I did... Freefall Jumpmaster, and I did ADIC. ADIC is Advanced Tactical Infiltration Course, and it was brutal course. Mike Glover was there with me. Me and Mike went together. He was a team sergeant in 10th group at the time, and we both were in SIF companies, and he went there. We both, you have to be a Jumpmaster if you're going to be on a freefall team. Now, I tell you, freefall to me was just something I had to do. I wasn't like Mr. Skydive God. I wasn't Mr do it on the weekends. I did it because I had to do it. And I remember talking to Andy Stump, and Andy Stump's a big free-for-all guy, obviously, and he's a big, you know, wingsuit and all that. And I was like, I got hundreds of jumps, man, but I freaking hated it. And he's like, really? And I was like, well, near the end, I just saw it as, as an opportunity to get fucked up, basically get hurt, because there's so many things that can go wrong. It's funny, when I went to free-for-all school, I remember the instructor went through all the malfunctions and this and hitting power lines and hitting water and all these things. And he said, basically, when you jump out of that bird, you're dead and you have 45 seconds to save your own life. And I was like, that's awesome. Uh, and people do get jacked up. And it's it's the last 100 meters. It's not like, I didn't have fear. I jumped at night. I, I didn't have fear. I just saw it as, you know, you land wrong, you're just going to fuck yourself up. So I went to, to jump master school where you have to learn how to rig the shoots, you know, JMPI and all that and jump master proper. And, you know, I, you can't go to free fall jump master unless you're static line jump master qualified. And I never did static. I, I did static line, but I never did any static line jump master duties. So I went to static line jump master and got that out of the way. And then I went, which the two are, they're apples and oranges. I don't know why people do that. But then I went to Freefall Jumpmaster. And you have to inspect, you know, you have to run through and inspect like three guys kitted up. And one is just the parachute. One's the parachute with the rucksack and the weapon. And one's the parachute with the rucksack and the weapon and the, the oxygen mask and all that. And you have to trace things to make sure things aren't crossed and the whole thing's going to open. The way they do it, like they, they make you do it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times where it's, everything's perfect. And then they'll put gigs in or, or mistakes in and they jump out at you. And it's almost like situational awareness, right? If you try to see everything, you're, you're going to miss stuff. But if you look for what's out of place, 
it, it should jump out at you if, you if you're situationally aware. People who say, oh, I, I go into the restaurant, I sit on my back to the wall and I watch everybody comes in, you'll burn yourself out really, really quickly. And But if you just relax and look for what's out of place, you're more effective. And then when we, you could not go to ADIC, Advanced Tactical Infiltration Court, unless you were free fall qualified. And that's why me and Mike went to free fall and then we went to ADIC. Like we, we graduated one on Friday, we picked up the other one on Monday. And ADIC was brutal, man, because it was real parachuting, right? It was real military free fall. None of this jumping with no kit on, none of this daylight jumping, none of this thing where the, the drop zone's massively lit up with arrows to show you the way the wind is going, none of that. We picked a grid in the in the middle of the desert and we jumped from freaking 25,000 feet and opened right away and flew for like 40 fucking minutes and, 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 and you know, your hands are up above your head because you're steering the parachute and it's cold up there and all the blood drains from your arms so you have no strength. And then I was like the second lightest guy in the course. Everybody else was heavier than me because I'm not a big guy and... So they gave me the heaviest rucksack, or the, around the heaviest rucksack. I had a massive rucksack, and Mike, Mike had a little tiny rucksack, right? Because they want me to fall at the same pace as everybody else, because it doesn't really matter as much where you land as long as you all land together. And there was a guy on our course who was a free fall instructor, and he couldn't do it. Like, he, he could not stay stable exiting the bird with a big rucksack on and O2 and night vision goggles and all that crap on you. And he ended up getting kicked out. Um, because if you jump and you tumble and everybody else, nobody else tumbles, then you're a thousand feet below everybody else and they have to circle all the way back around and pick you up and you're not getting to your destination at that point. So they hammered exit. If you tumble on exit, and they had GoPros everywhere in the bird and all the instructors and all the students and they could tell. And, you know, this guy had tumbled a couple of times and they'd warned him and counseled him. And then one time he jumped and when he landed, he lost his night vision goggles, right? And he did not want to say he tumbled. So he made up some BS story that he opened up and he was fine. And when he was coming in to land, he looked left and right and they caught on his risers and popped off, which is complete BS and you should know it. Well, they were like, this is that. And what had happened, he's, he'd exit and tumbled and lost his nods. So when we were looking for them, because you don't let night vision, night, night vision goggles are a sensitive item, you don't let that go. We were online. Every student from that course, every student from the, the basic course, every instructor were online, hundreds of people in the desert, walking, um, arms distance apart, looking for these things for hours and hours and hours. And what happened was we were looking where he said he was coming into final approach and he lost them when he, when he exited which was miles back that way. And because he lied, we we're looking in the wrong place. And one of the other students, actually, he had told him that he, he tumbled on exit. And I was like, dude, you got to tell people, man, we're looking in the wrong, they'll never let us leave here. And uh, he went and told them and they, they went and they shifted the search and we found them and all smashed the pieces in the desert and they kicked that guy out. When you come in to land, you're landing with night vision goggles and no lights, no wind indicators. You just got to figure that shit out. And uh, big, big, heavy rucksacks. And it, it was a rough course. Like, I ate shit on that course. And, and there's no stand-up landings, any of that BS. You go to half breaks and do a PLF, parachute landing, fall, and you tuck and roll and hope for the best. And when you stop rolling, you do a functions check to make sure all your arms and legs are working. And you get up and do it again. <laughs> it was rough. But I learned a lot, and I became very, very good. 
And I brought all that back to my team and it became a viable infiltration tactic. Now, if you look at military freefall, and there's a lot to it. It's one skill. When I was a team sergeant in the SIF company, I had like 18 different metal tasks that I had to be really good at. My team had to be really good at. Military freefall was one. And it's a ride to work. When your feet hit the ground, your job really starts, right? So how much emphasis do you put on it? You work on it for a couple of weeks and then you put it down and you go do something else, right? And you think about tasks. Some tasks have 30 subtasks. Reconnaissance is a task. Reconnaissance by itself has breaking tons of subtasks. Breaching, mechanical, ballistic, explosive breaching, CQB, language, 18 different skill sets that we had to be good at. So you become jack of all trades and master of very few. And that's why I've said before, like people think SF guys or SEALs or Delta or whatever are these guys who are brilliant at everything. They're absolutely not. They're pretty good at a lot of things. And they only really, really get good at one thing is if they work at a school. The guys who work at military freefall school are phenomenal at freefall. But when they go back to a team, they don't really bring that much back. Guys who work at Sephardic, awesome at CQB and shooting and pistol and carbine and all that, right? That's a hugely beneficial skill to bring back to your team. Sniper school, bring Mac back to your team. But if you go work as, you know, a, a guy at language school who's herding cats or something like that, you really are outdated by the time you go back to your team. And if you're if you're going to SWIC and you're coming back to a team and you're not like retiring out of there, then you really need to look at what you do and make sure you're bringing something back to the team and you're not completely outdated by the time you get back there. Um, military freefall is a right to work and it's, it's a right to work that risk-averse commanders are very rarely willing to actually let people do. So I did it because I had to do it, but then I moved on to other things. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap it up there because I gotta go to the bathroom. I I will um, I'll pick it up here next time, and we, we we'll drive on. I appreciate you guys listening. Hit me up with questions. Oh, before I go, I. I had a video on YouTube that on how to mount a scope. I got a couple of warnings from people saying YouTube have changed their standards and you might get deleted or you'll get a strike. Look, so I moved it. I started a Rumble account today and I don't expect people to freaking bounce from platform to platform. I'm only going to put stuff on Rumble that I think YouTube won't allow me to put up, right? So I'll move that scope mounting video to Rumble. And look, social media is social media. Instagram, YouTube, you can complain about it all you want. It's a free platform. And if you're not willing to abide by their rules as skewed and one-sided as they are, then you shouldn't be on there, right? So if they want to say this is not allowed, then I'll abide by their rules. And then if I have anything that's borderline, I'll just kick it over to Rumble and you can find it there, okay? All right, guys, I appreciate you listening. Until the next time, uh, bye. <laughs>